Today's a special morning. We'll pause from our What Happens Next series. We have a missionary with us today, and not a missionary from a foreign place, uh, telling stories that we could hardly imagine, but a missionary who is right here with us in our midst, serving in our city, entering into some of uh, the most challenging situations you, you could imagine, but ones that we can resonate with, with a heart of mercy and compassion. I know you will. Uh, we believe it is time to recognize this ministry more, more for- formally. Many of you already know about it and know of this missionary and pray for her and support her, uh, but now is a chance to do even more and collectively to recognize uh, she reaches into places that not many of us will ever have the opportunity to reach into, to serve into, but by praying by an opportunity to support and by encouragement, we as a body can reach into these places and be love in action for those in crisis, in trauma, and those that are hurting. So looking forward to hearing about that extensively today and being stirred collectively to what does love in action look like for each one of us in the places that God has called us to and invited us into. So that's coming. But first, going to pray for kids and all of us as we uh, turn to God's word and to his heart today and dismiss our kids to their class. Father, we come before you today with much that has already been shared and sung. We are filled with gratitude. We are filled with hope. We are filled with joy because of who you are and what Christ has done. And at the same time, we are mingled with these emotions of unsettledness, of hurt, of wondering, of doubting. And each one of us has come from a week that has had ups and downs, and some probably even carrying a heavier burden and a weight than we even know, than they've even been able to share yet with anyone because it's, it's recent. And yet they are here, they are with us, they are watching online, they are with us, and you are with them, you are with each of us in your grace and your compassion because you see us in our need and you've come to us to dwell with us and amongst us, to offer us healing and hope in you, And we pray that we would draw near to you and you promised to draw near to us, that we would sense your presence this morning and respond to your love by putting mercy into action, into the places and spaces that you invite us to, from our families, to our workspaces, to our schools, where we live, learn, work, and play, that we would be responsive to your love in us naturally, bringing light into the darkness, bringing hope into the hopeless places. So fill us and fill your people today again with your spirit. Bless our young ones as they go to grow up in you a little bit more today. May that be true of all of us. We pray in your name, Jesus, all these things. Amen. All right, kids, four through fifth grade. Welcome to go with Miss Sarah and Miss Jane today. Okay, I got one of the houseflies. That's your mission when we inherit a building that is multi-decades and nearly a century old in places, uh, we get to inherit things that come with old buildings, like flies. Before I invite our missionary up, let me frame why this ministry is so important. And I, I don't wanna overstate it, so let's just call it the second most important thing in the world a provocative title intentionally. But let me read from Luke chapter 10. This is one of Jesus' most famous parables coming in response to a question that is also recorded in Matthew 22. 
So you can get your devices or your Bibles and flip or click to Matthew 22 and to Luke 10. I'll be reading from Luke 10, verse 25 and following. And maybe it will make sense why I would call this the second most important thing in all of the world. Because of this parable of Jesus, all 50 states have a law on the books that to break this parable is to break the law. So if we were to actually bring forward this parable, it wasn't a real event, it was a story that could easily have been a real event, but in this context, in present day, then the priest and essentially the pastor in the story would have broken the law and could have been arrested. So there's a teaser. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, and that would be the Mosaic law, much of the, the Hebrew scriptures would have been considered the law of God, the word of God. An expert in the law stood up and asked Jesus to test him, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And so he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly, so do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply to this, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, they left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So, Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In Matthew 22, we don't have the parable we have what in our, most of our translations under the heading, the greatest commandment. Jesus answering the question, essentially, what is the most important thing in all the world of all time? What's, what's, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Where do I inherit eternal life? What's it all about, Jesus? And he answered the question. He didn't redirect. He didn't ask another question in response as he does so often. He answered the question in the same way. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to make some say, this is the second most important, but it is so like it, they're so intertwined, one can't be done without the other, to love our neighbor as ourself. We really can use superlatives in talking about this heart of God and our response. This is love in action. This is what it means to express the heart of God, to show mercy in this way. So as famous as this parable is, and what do we know it as? The Good Samaritan. And that's even the, the laws in 
are named, the Good Samaritan Law. Interestingly, we don't even have the name right. Nowhere in this parable does Jesus call the Samaritan good. Now, certainly his actions that day were good, and so we're probably splitting hairs. But a more appropriate title for this parable would be the merciful Samaritan, the merciful. That's what Jesus affirms. This man was merciful. He took pity. He had compassion on the hurt one. Jesus teaches us that love sees the hurting and the needy, the oppressed and the marginalized, those that the world often passes by, those in the relative ditch of society, and goes to them, pursues them, and invites all who would follow him to do the same, to take compassion, to show mercy. It's one thing to say, I love people, I love all people. It's, another, it's one thing to also live a, a pious, a righteous or religious life, but to not put love into action then they are just words. And according to Jesus, love must move into action if it's truly to be love. It's what we're all called to. It's essentially the description of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is the gospel that we proclaim. Our God has seen us in our lowest moments, often in crisis, victims of abuse, suffering trauma, hurting and needy, and has come to us has met us, has offered healing to us. While we were yet dead, he has brought us life. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Because of God's great love for us, he who is rich in mercy has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. It is by grace we have been saved. Now, as we start to try to apply these words, we're not all going to exercise or express love in the same ways. We have different opportunities, but it must move into action. And this parable must invite us all to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Who is God asking me to see? Because love first sees those that the world often overlooks, ignores, or marginalizes. And it looks to act, to respond, to serve, to help, to give, even if it's a small way. Will we ask that question today? Will we be humble enough to invite God to reveal those that we might have otherwise overlooked? May we be humble enough to not assume that we already know exactly what God is asking of us. That may change from season to season in our lives. Now, we may be affirmed that we are being faithful, we are walking faithfully. But apparently this man who was testing Jesus was at least arrogant enough to put Jesus to the test and also to seek to justify himself, which we have to assume means he believed he was already fulfilling this law and wanted everyone else to know about it too. It's likely that this man, this expert in the law, and much of the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, the law would have instructed them to care for the needy, the poor, the immigrant, so to be faithful to that law as an expert in it, this man likely gave much of his income, his resources to serve the needy and the poor. And he was looking for a little affirmation from Jesus that all would know. And Jesus tells a, a striking story, a shocking parable, where the hero of the story is not the priest or the pastor or the expert in the law, the scribe, the Pharisee, but a Samaritan. No love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
They were often hostile toward one another. The Samaritan is the hero, the one who actually expresses the heart of God faithfully. The one without training, without equipping, with no heritage and lineage, he's the one that shows true love and mercy. According to Micah 6, 8, God has told you, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, to be clear, before we continue to give the priest and the Levite the the bad rap that they've often gotten, it's not that they were arrogant or uncaring or uncompassionate. In fact, there were two other reasons they likely passed by on the other side of the road, seeing a man who looked dead in the ditch. As a priest and as a Levite, a Levite would serve within the temple, help, help in the worship of God. To enter into those places would require to be ceremonially clean according to the law. And to touch the blood of another or to touch a dead body would have made them ceremonially unclean for a period of time, up to a week long. So to go and serve or to check out this this body would have cost them something significant, would have cost them their role in leading worship, likely that day, in ministering to God's people, in doing something that God actually highly valued, that they were responding to the call of God, and yet their priorities were just off. And this is what Jesus often came to to unsettle and to turn right side up, was that the priorities of God are always for his hurting people. We, all, we often see Jesus going into those places, touching the leper, touching the woman with the bleeding disorder, touching the dead bodies to raise them up again, bringing his holiness and purity into their, their places, not being defiled by it, but extending God's kingdom. And that's what he invites to his followers. That's the priority of love in action. But we understand why Perhaps these, the priest and the Levite had every reason in the world to pass by on the other side. Perhaps they were also in a hurry to get to that work, we could understand. Now, it's a parable. It didn't actually happen. It leaves it open for question, but it invites us to ask that question. Who have I overlooked or who have I seen and said, I cannot help or I need not help? Someone behind me will. Whatever excuses we've made to not see or to not extend mercy to those who are hurting is what Jesus wants us to come before him humbly and ask. Open my eyes. Give me your heart. Let me put love into action as you have to us. Well, our missionary, there's our framing. Our missionary among us has answered this question in a unique way, in a significant way, with a number of parallels to this very parable. Again, very few of us will have the opportunity, the equipping, and the calling to do what she does, but by praying and by supporting and by encouraging, we too can reach into these places, some of the most tragic places of trauma and crisis in our community, in the lives of our neighbors. So Stephanie, come. Hopefully most of you figured it out by now, but not everyone here knows Stephanie. Oh, you don't need that. You've got the microphone. You should be on. Yes, I do. Welcome, Stephanie. Stephanie Bauer has been with us for a number of years, many, many years. Yes. Many years. In fact, what, six years married to Josh last month? Is that right? Six? Yep. six? Okay, I got, my, I got my math right. That's good. He's hanging in there. Steph has served in various 
ministries has probably touched, if you're a member here and been here any length of time, has touched your life in one way or another, served on our mercy team significantly, led our mercy team for a couple years, and then has passed that off a year and a half ago as this new ministry started taking more and more time and energy and emotion. So tell us about chaplaincy. Generally, chaplaincy in our region, and specifically, what does chaplaincy look like in the city of Redmond? Yeah, so um, to um, be a chaplain um, is to go uh, when someone passes away. Uh, you're either called uh, in, in Redmond, you're a chaplain for both um, the fire department and the police department. So anytime someone passes away, um, you will go and you will console the family or the individual. Um, anytime um, also that... Uh, Fire will also call us if, they, if there's a total lost house fire um, to help support the family who's lost their home. Um, and uh, so that is generally what chaplaincy is. So you're comforting those um, in the middle of a, of a crisis. Another term for chaplaincy I use often when people don't know what that is, is um, a crisis intervention specialist. Um, and uh, yeah, that's generally what that is. So how did... How did you first get connected with this ministry, and what does it take to become a chaplain? Someone here that might be stirred by that, you don't just get to get on, on the call list tomorrow and grab that right. pager. I think chaplains were the last people in the world to use pagers. Is that right? Or <laughs> doctors? Might have been. Maybe. <laughs> what, is it, what, did it, what did it take? How did you first get connected with this ministry, and what was, what's yeah. been the path to this point? Um, so I was uh, tapped by John Tracy that some of you may know who was... Um, he was a pastor here for a time, um, an elder on the team here at church. Um, and at the time, I was leading the Mercy Ministry, and he noted that um, I possibly had the right stuff to do the job. Um, and uh, so some of the qualifications to be a chaplain are you have to be, uh, have been in a ministerial role uh, for a number of years. Um, you need to be... Um, basically seen well by that church body. And that um, these are kind of general guidelines because it does include all religions. It's not just specific to Christianity. So they're kind of general guidelines. Um, and then you need to be of, you know, basically good character. I went through the same background check process that a police officer does when uh, they apply for the job, except for that they didn't make me take a polygraph. <laughs> So um, that is how I got, I got into it, and I um, will always be so thankful to John for seeing that. I definitely, um, I def I, by the time my background check was done, which by the way took like five months during COVID, um, it was a long process, um, that I, was, uh, I went on my very first call, and uh, when I was done with that call, I said, I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. Um, I definitely felt like it was a calling from God upon my heart, um, but you don't know for sure till you take that first call. And um, so, yeah. What else have you noticed as a part of your equipping in your story that, that could on that first call say, this is it? This is what I was, I've been wired for this kind of ministry. Yeah. 
yeah. is so unique. So what, what have you noticed? You shared some of those things with me of your story that has equipped you not just in the actual training that you've received to do this work, but in your story. Yeah. So I'd say one of the, the interesting things about the way that I grew up is that I, some of you know, I grew up on a cattle ranch. And I often watched um, the animals be butchered. And um, that, in a very odd way, has significantly helped me to see some of the things that I see um, and be able to have a calm reaction to that. Um, and um, additionally, I would say I, I was, for a brief time, a firefighter myself. And um, I just noticed that where other people shied away I always wanted to uh, walk towards the pain and the hurt. Um, I wanted to sit with people. I wanted to hold their hand. I wanted to talk to them when all the other people wanted to leave. They were ready to go back to the station and get back in service. Um, and, uh, and so that, that was part of it. And then also um, my, my own suffering, my walk with Christ, um, having lost my mother, very suddenly when I was about 28 years old, I believe. Um, and walking through that, that grief process myself. Um, and then additionally, the work that I did on the Mercy Ministry really helped me to be able to talk to people from all different walks of life with all different kinds of stories um, and things that they had going on in their lives, and I just never knew what I was gonna get. And that very much prepared me to do the chaplaincy because again, it's a job where I never know what I'm gonna get. I, know, I don't know what I'm walking into. Um, so I only have what's on the, what they call the call sheet, so that just says this person, they're actively doing CPR, or this person was found already deceased, or this person, um, is, you know, was involved in a car accident. That's all I get before I get there. So, um, yeah, I think all those things um, and just the way, I think I, uh, I have the gift of mercy. Um, uh, and uh, I think all those things kind of coalesce together, I guess, yeah. to be, yeah. Yeah, it's really kind unique. Of a calling. And it's been affirmed. I think it's been affirmed by a number in this room who know you, and we see that in you. Talk a little bit about the kind of the practicals. How, how often do you get a call? How many other chaplains are there now? I know that's changing in Redmond. How, like, is this, yeah, just give a, an idea of are you always on call or not? And then, yeah. you know, get, give yeah. a snapshot of that. Um, so currently I am the only red, uh, chaplain in Redmond. Uh, that was new. I, I came back from vacation and... Uh, there, I, I came back to the news that the other chaplain had quit. Uh, very rightly so, he was choosing his family over this work, which is the right thing to do. Um, but uh, that did, this is not a one person job. <laughs> so um, I am on call constantly, all the time, unless I choose um, to take myself off call, which I can do formally or uh, informally by just asking another chaplain from a different territory if they can do the work for me. So, or cover, which I did this morning because Ben said, I don't have a backup sermon. So if you have to leave, what happens? So. <laughs> I'm sure I would have come up with something, but I just, I wanted you here. We yeah. wanted you here. <laughs> how, many call, how often do you get a call? I mean, I know that varies, of course, yeah. but. 
So I would say it's averaging right now maybe two a week, um, but it never works by the law of averages. Um, it might be, I might take 10 calls in a row and then not get called for a month. So um, it's just, it's a, it's a very variable job. Um, sometimes it's chaotic and stressful and you get compassion fatigue and sometimes um, you're like, hmm. I, think, I feel like it's time, it's coming. Hmm. <laughs> It's amazing so. to think about, you know, being, having, being a call away from someone's tragedy and someone's crisis at any moment to carry that with you, even when you're not in the moment responding, there's just a weight to, to that. You're choosing to walk by this road daily, essentially, and say, I'm here and I'm ready, Jesus. And that's a pretty amazing thing you're being invited into. Without, the, without details, what, what are some of, the, some of the calls you go into that are really significant, are, are hard, that you've carried heavily? Yeah. So we can have a window into that and know how to pray for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so like always, your, your police and your fire and, and your chaplains are going to tell you that the, the toughest calls to take are the ones with kids, um, where kids pass away. Um, having to deliver that news to parents um, you're often right in the middle of it. Like you might, they might be doing CPR on their child and now they're going to cease efforts because they're not getting anywhere and you're going to break the news to those parents. Um, uh, doing um, death notifications. So cold knocking on someone's door to tell them that their loved one is gone um, is a very difficult thing to do. It comes just out of the cold blue for people. Um, and uh, I think those are some of the hardest things to do. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a snapshot. Um, how do you seek to also serve? I know your, your heart is for those in, in crisis, in, in trauma, and to be that bridge. Obviously, there's a long-term support. That's not your primary role. There's, you know, there's scaffold for that. But you, you do a unique role. How do you also try to serve the first responders? Because they're, they're not always, often equipped for this kind of, of work. And they have more work to go immediately do and respond to. So how's your, what's your heart for them? You, you were a firefighter. Um, and how do you seek to serve them and build those relationships so that we know how we can pray and su- support our first responders through you? Yeah. So um, it takes years to be in a department um, for them to trust you. Um, you just got to put in the time. So I seek opportunities where I can get my face in front of them. So uh, one of the ways to do that is to be um, to play a victim when they're doing practices, scenarios. Um, they did a mass, mass casualty incident scenario, police and fire together in an abandoned hotel in Bellevue. And I played a victim for like three days in a row um, where they're like carrying me up and down the stairs and... <laughs> dressing my wound and those kind of things. Um, uh, Unfortunately, in this era, um, pretty much all police departments that I know of now do. Over the summer, when the schools aren't full, they do um, active shooter drills inside the high schools and the junior highs. Um, So I did participate in that. And and so um, they have the, the person who's the active shooter dress up in protective gear, and then they fire paintball rounds. 
Um, so there was that, and then there, and then I also played um, the hostage in that situation as well. Um, and so those um, are some of the ways I've put my face out there. They do their own um, events, for charitable events. Fire has a benevolent fund that they use, um, and they do a pancake breakfast at the Redmond Derby days every year. I've never washed so many dishes in my life. Um, so there's just a few ways you can just get shoulder to shoulder with them and do something that says, hey, I'm here with you. Um, you know, I'm here to chat if you need. Um, you know, one of the things we try to do sometimes is if um, I'm not needed uh, by the family at a call, um, you know, or maybe um, there was there was another chaplain there when that was a possibility. Then I might go stop by the station and say, "Hey, that looked like that looked like a tough one," like, you know. But um, you don't even come at it that quite that directly. You come at it very subtly. You're just there to chat, um, and so yeah. I like your long-range vision of just building trust, of being present, of being there. That's mm -hmm. also an expression of the heart of Jesus. I think most know, but we do want to make this clear, this is not a salaried position. There is no resources given to this role. This is all either donated time, energy, and, and that's why raising support to do more of this, it just takes a unique person, a unique place uh, in life, a season in life, and a unique commitment. And I think that, in a, that alone, as you are consistent and present, says a lot to those you serve is, she does not need to be here. She's getting nothing for this, ultimately. Like, it would be our community saying, we believe in this mission work, and we want to support you in that. To at least cover travel expense. I mean, it's been costing you more than just energy <laughs> and emotion to do this. Think about the time, the travel, the, the work, getting supplies, getting food for those in need, taking kids and caring for them. It's just a, it's a, it's a lot. And I think that does say a lot, um, even if there's different beliefs at play, that's not what it's primarily about. It's about being light into the darkness, and you're doing that in an amazing way. So how do you sense some of that? This is, you said this was your calling, a sense of, like, I, just, I am called to this. Um, how is this an expression of, of the gospel for you, your identity in Christ? How do you see your opportunity to do like this parable uh, teaches and reflect Christ into these places? And how do, you, how do you go in with him, uh, even if you can't speak openly of him necessarily, but just to be his presence there, mm -hmm. his gospel? Um, I know the first responder would wish I lived closer so I could be at calls quicker. But I t appreciate the time it takes me to drive from my house out in Duval into Redmond because I get to pray before every call. Um, and uh, I think that that's, it's really important. I pray uh, for the families. Um, my, my often my, the prayer that I say the most on my way to a call is, I just, can I get out of the way, Lord? Like, let this not be what I want to say, but what you want to say. Um, what light do you want to be here? Um, and there, there have, certainly the circumstances of what I do um, grows my faith um, all the time. Um, you're faced with unique challenges all the time and I think um, it causes me to really wrestle with some things you know one of the things that I I tried to do before I started the job was to really dig into my Bible what does God say about suffering what does God say about suffering and his sovereignty why does he let bad things happen to good people it's an age-old question 
and um, I read through some really good books and got a really solid theological foundation about that before I started that has helped me immensely um, to see some of the things that I see and do and help people in crisis. Um, and also, sometimes I go on calls and I think to myself, although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm like literally standing in the shadow of death. And, uh, and I'm, I am some places that I think a Christian has never been invited to be here. Um, and, and if I can bring hope to that situation and bring Christ sometimes only subtly to that place, um, that that's, that's an amazing thing to do. That's, yeah. Amen. Thank you for that. How can we support you? So many already are praying for you and you're giving a, a bigger window in now for some of us and this is new for others. How can we support you when we think of you? How can we pray for you? Because uh, it's not just doing the work, so to speak, and maybe in the middle of the night and the energy to do that, the alertness to do that, which are probably good prayers, <laughs> but you carry away yeah. from these places. Yeah. Sometimes, and maybe even a sense of taking that, that hopelessness and that darkness away and then giving that over to the Lord. How do we walk with you in this and encourage you? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a total confidentiality for the chaplaincy, so you don't talk about the calls that you take. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, one way to just pray is that I don't know any chaplain that walked away without some PTSD wounds from doing this job. And uh, I think just that mental, emotional, spiritual fortitude to do this over the long term is just a really powerful prayer I would really appreciate. Um, yeah. When we see you on a Sunday, a lot, you've said for some reason it seems like there's just a lot of calls Saturday night or in, overnight or into Sunday morning. It's weekend. People are doing different things. Um, for, for, I don't know if, why, if, that, if that's true or not, but you feel that. So we don't see you as much as we'd like yeah. to. But well, it actually is the case because I cover for a lot of other chaplains on Sundays. Most chaplains are pastors. So the hardest time to get a chaplain is yeah. on a Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> So when so, we see you, yeah. what should we ask? What should be some of the questions we should ask and any questions we shouldn't ask, you know, that would... Yeah, you know, I mean, so I always appreciate you. being asked how I'm doing, um, you know. Um, yeah, just don't, don't shy away if I tell you I'm, I'm not doing well, you know. Um, sometimes I'm going to take a call and it's going to stay with me for a while. Um, and... Uh, and I would say pray for Josh as well, because this is not a one-person job. I mean, he, um, he's great at listening to me unload when I come home from a, from a tough call. Um, he supports me. He picks up the slack when I take one in the middle of the night, and I'm, I'm just, like, useless the next day. Um, so, yeah, really him too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well done, Josh. Appreciate you. <laughs> Uh, we're excited to partner with this ministry. We've been praying, as we always do, for uh, how do we express the heart of Jesus in our witness, according to Acts 1.8. You will be witnesses in your Jerusalem, in Judea, the surrounding region, into Samaria, places totally not like us, and unto the ends of the earth. So we look at those four areas, trying to be faithful to that call. And we've been praying for what specifically does missionary work look like in Redmond, this is our Jerusalem, 
Uh, and Stephanie's on that list. Now, a couple of years ago with John Tracy in a transitional time, we created uh, the Community Crisis Outreach to do a lot more than just support uh, chaplains. It has a broader vision than that, but we know chaplaincy is such a, a direct access and window into crisis, into pain, into places that most of us can, will not be invited into, can't go, and probably don't even see. Uh, but these are our neighbors walking amongst us who have been in these crisis points. So that, that fund is in place. The elders are, are, have, are excited to begin to partner uh, at $1,000 a month to support. That's not much. Uh, Stephanie's not looking for a full salary. By God's grace in this season, they're okay. Um, they're you know, well uh, provided for. But yet, this get, takes so much. And, Again, thanks, Josh. Um, <laughs> to do this long term... and, and the word says the worker is worth their wages. The work, we should partner with, those who have much should partner with those that are going into places to be Jesus in these places. So we have the privilege to, to start at 1,000. Many of you gave to this fund generously, and there's been a, a remnant, a remaining amount in that fund that we've been praying for how to steward. And so from that fund, we are going to match the 1,000. So there'll be a $2,000 a month support to Stephanie. If you would like to support that, so that matching, that matching will run out if you don't give to the Community Crisis Outreach Fund. If you give to it, we can match that long term. And we as elders will look into that. And if there's an abundance in there, then we can transfer more to Stephanie or ask her to pray how to use that for other chaplains who need to raise support. Uh, her name won't be attached to that fund. So if you go onto our website and go to giving, Community Crisis Outreach, CCO, uh, will be will be there. Her name won't be attached to it, but right now you can be assured that we are partnering with her from that fund. So if you would like to support, I invite you to do that. In fact, I invite all of us to do this, uh, even if it's, you can set up a recurring $10 a month or $20 a month. Say, that's all I can do right now. That's I'm giving in lots of other ways, but I, I believe in this also. Uh, just know if you are giving to our general fund, the thousand support is coming out from that. So you're already supporting Stephanie in this ministry. So be encouraged if you give that way. If you feel like this is really resonant and this is just a ministry you must support in greater detail, uh, come talk with me or to one of the elders with Stephanie or, uh, how we can reach uh, and support even more into this kind of work. It's amazing that you're the only chaplain right now and we'd love to see that ministry grow. Uh, we'd mm -hmm. love to see other Christ followers enter into that place. There's a long legacy and history through Union Hill Church of chaplaincy from Pastor Tom Osborne who was a chaplain for over 10 years uh, to John Tracy who served for a number of years to now Stephanie and I think if we tally up the total uh, number of chaplains through, throughout Redmond, uh, we'd have a good percentage of those <laughs> that have felt that stirring in that heart. So uh, from a small church doing some big things, some amazing work. So we're excited about that. Please pray about how to support uh, and partner with that. Of course, we're here first asking just for awareness, for eyes open, for prayer, for encouragement uh, in, in, into this ministry, and we want to give more updates as, as time goes on. Anything else you want to leave us with? I think you had a quote that you wanted to share. Are you going to read that? Uh, yeah. Or did you scratch that? I would just say, of course, too, like prayer for more chaplains, because like I said, it's another one-person job. Yeah. So uh, a lot of you may be familiar with Brene Brown. She's a pretty famous speaker. Um, she had one of the top five most viewed TED Talks um, of all time. And I'm going to read a little bit of something she wrote. Uh, this is one of the hardest lessons that I have learned in life. The power of not looking away from another person's pain. That idea of walking with someone in the hurt. Looking them right in the eye and not wavering. When we do this, we show another human being that they are not alone. 
This makes it one of the greatest gifts we can give to someone else. It is also one of the greatest gifts we can receive. Having someone stand with you when the walls are closing in, that moment when the pain is too much and it physically hurts, that moment when your emotions overwhelm you and hope fades. To have another person look you in the eye and not hide from your emotion is a gift. Life can be beautiful and happy and spectacular, but it can also be tragic and overwhelming and lonely. For these reasons, don't look away. Look hurt in the eye and go through it. Connect with people. Let them know that they aren't alone, especially in those dark moments. Find your people that will do the same for you, the ones that don't look away, the ones that sit with you in the dark, give you a shoulder to cry on, and never make you feel like you are a burden to them. Sometimes life isn't easy. In fact, sometimes it can be heartbreaking. Maybe you can be the person that gives the gift of not hiding from someone else's pain. You might just be what they need, and you probably know what I mean if you have ever needed the gift yourself. That's a good word. This is a, a ministry. I hope you sense it as a mission, a call. She is a missionary amongst us. It's the heart of Jesus being expressed in a unique way. It's the answer to who is, who is my neighbor. It's the way God's inviting you to answer that. Uh, we won't all answer it the same way, but we all are invited to ask that because it's what Christ has done for us. It's what our God has done for us. He's seen us in, in our crisis moments and always will in our trauma and our hurt and has come to offer healing, to rescue, and his presence with us, his mercy for us. So praise God for that. Uh, one of the things I'd like to do is pray for Stephanie, and we thought, what a special opportunity to have uh, Pat Hammond with us today. Pat, would you come and join us? Some of you have gotten to know Pat over these last couple months. He's been visiting and attending with us. Pat served as a chaplain in Redmond for 35 years, and sometimes probably was one of the only ones. Come, come up, come stand. I'll give you a mic. And I asked Pat to come and maybe say a word of blessing and a prayer over Stephanie. Pat has retired, or is now in an, another <laughs> ministry, <laughs> a new ministry. Yeah. And so we're just thankful to have Pat with us. And I thought, as there's some kind, a sense of a passing of a torch for someone who feels a call to right. do this for a long time. I know that's an answer to one of your prayers over all of these years, that God would raise up other chaplains like this. So thanks for being with us. And Ben's sharing. a neighbor. He used to live about three doors from me, yeah, and right. now he lives about... 15 houses away from me. <laughs> Back into the neighborhood. And he walks his dog in the neighborhood re regularly and comes to my yard and plays with my dog. So yeah. it's fun to watch <laughs> Ben to grow it. up and lead this church. Uh, Stephanie, I, I began doing this in 1985. There was no such thing as a chaplain program. Was three. You were three years old. Yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gosh. And I, I came to understand that this was really what, what you're going to be is going, you're going to be an undercover crisis pastor evangelist in the city. Mm -hmm. You're going to be going there and you're going to be called by the city, by, by Caesar, <laughs> into some of the most tragic opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Police, EMS, and fire. So in that calling, mm -hmm. I would send you, along with your pastor, to do that work. 
So let's pray for you and ask God's protection on you, on Josh, on your home, on your marriage, because you're going into the devil's territory. You really are. And it is intense. Please play hands up. Yes, please pray. Thank you. Father, thank you for Stephanie and the, the courage she's expressed, the willingness that she and Josh have expressed to come and to be involved in some of the most intense, dynamic, painful, hurtful, ugly circumstances on earth. Jesus, that's why you died on the cross 2,000 years ago. You are risen, you live in this woman, and she's accepted your call to go and be a undercover pastor, evangelist, crisis caregiver. We send her today in Jesus' name, asking for protection, for power. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Pat, for being here.